This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook, Professional Responsibility, an open source casebook by Brian L. Fry and Elizabeth Schiller. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Zero, no rights reserved. That means that the authors have explicitly disclaimed any copyright claim in all of the original elements that they created in writing this casebook and have intentionally placed the casebook in the public domain. Much thanks is due to Brian and Elizabeth for writing this book and placing it in the public domain for everybody to use. In furtherance of this spirit of open source, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Zero, No Rights Reserved. I hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody to Section 7 of the Practice of Law module. In this section, we'll be talking about the regulation of the legal profession. Bar admission. In the United States, admission to the bar and the regulation of attorneys is governed primarily by state law. Specifically, the highest court of each state establishes the standards for admission to the state's bar and the rules of professional responsibility regulating the conduct of the members of the state's bar. Courts uniformly delegate those responsibilities to administrative organizations. Typically, courts delegate admission to the bar to a board of bar examiners and delegate the regulation of the bar to a disciplinary board. But the court always retains the ultimate authority over both admission to the bar and regulation of the bar. Historically, the practice of law was primarily local. The overwhelming majority of attorneys and law firms practiced law only in one state, and were members of only one state bar. But as the practice of law has become increasingly national and international, and law firms open offices in multiple states and even foreign countries, the localized regulation of the bar has come into tension with the non-local practice of law. Members of the state bar may have an incentive to discourage non-members from joining their bar or practicing in their state. While the desire to reduce competition is understandable, it can harm the consumers of legal services by reducing their options and increasing the price. Admission to the bar. Originally, the qualifications for bar membership were quite relaxed. In the 18th and 19th centuries, there were few law schools and few attorneys attended or graduated from them. The majority of attorneys qualified for the bar by apprenticing or reading law in a law office. Examination for admission was typically oral and often cursory but legal education and admission to the bar gradually became more formalized in the 20th century.
Today, most states have adopted similar requirements for admission to the state bar. The overwhelming majority of states require applicants to the state bar to have graduated from a law school accredited by the American Bar Association, passed the state's bar examination and professional responsibility examination, and demonstrated good moral character. But there are exceptions. Some states offer independent accreditation of law schools. Some states still allow applicants to qualify for the bar by reading law for prescribed periods of time, rather than attending law school. And some states allow the graduates of certain law schools to qualify for the bar without taking a bar exam. And some states do not require a professional responsibility exam. But all states require a showing of good moral character. Residency Requirements Until relatively recently, many states imposed explicit residency requirements for bar membership. This enables the members of the state bar to limit or prevent competition by preventing attorneys from practicing in multiple jurisdictions. But in Supreme Court of New Hampshire versus Piper, the Supreme Court invalidated many of those residency requirements, holding that they violated the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution, unless a state can show substantial reasons for discriminating against non-residents. Notably, the federal courts have their own bars. The Supreme Court, each federal circuit and district court, and the District of Columbia all maintain their own independent federal bars. Their bars have different requirements. District court bars typically require membership in the bar of the state in which the district court sits, and circuit courts typically require membership in any state bar. Some have even had residency requirements, but the Supreme Court invalidated those residency requirements in Frazier v. Hebe. An attorney who is not a member of the bar of a court but wishes to represent a client in that court may petition to appear pro hack vice or for this turn only. The court is not required to grant a motion to appear pro hack vice, and each new action requires a separate application. In many jurisdictions, an attorney may appear pro hack vice only if they affiliate with a member of the court's bar as co-counsel. In theory, this requirement ensures compliance with local rules, but it also provides employment to the members of the bar. Character and Fitness All states limit bar admission to candidates of good moral character, but the contours of the requirement can vary widely from state to state and examiner to examiner. The substance of the good moral character requirement are vague, perhaps deliberately vague, but typically include honesty, respect for the law, 
and respect for the rights of others. Typically, applicants are rejected for failing to satisfy the requirement on the basis of failure to disclose material facts on the bar exam application, criminal conduct or convictions, and fraudulent or dishonest behavior. In theory, applicants who have engaged in past disqualifying conduct may qualify for admission by proving their rehabilitation. But historically, many bar examiners have rejected applicants based on criminal convictions, irrespective of any evidence of rehabilitation. In recent years, this tendency has begun to change. Among other things, the Washington Bar Association approved the admission of an individual who pled guilty to bank robbery in 1998 and served 10 years in federal prison, where he taught himself the law and drafted a successful petition to the Supreme Court for one of his fellow inmates. After his release from prison, this individual graduated from the University of Washington School of Law and clerked on the D.C. Circuit. Advertising Attorneys are professionals, and the bar is a professional organization. But how, if at all, should the professional status of attorneys affect their commercial behavior? Attorneys have fiduciary duties to their clients and professional duties as officers of the court. But do they have professional duties of decorum to the public as a whole? And how should the bar regulate those commercial activities of attorneys? When do professional norms justify regulation? And in whose interests should the bar regulate the commercial activities of attorneys, the public or its members? In the 19th century, attorneys regularly advertised their services in newspapers and magazines. Among other things, Patent attorneys solicited patent applications from inventors nationwide. But in the early 20th century, state bar associations began to frown on advertising. And in 1908, Canon 27 of the American Bar Association's original canons of professional ethics explicitly discouraged advertisement and solicitation as unprofessional. Gradually, the ethical principles motivating Canon 27 were refined by state and national bar associations to provide increasingly detailed norms governing what kinds of attorney advertising were permissible, with the exception of patent and trademark attorneys and proctors in admiralty. Most attorneys could not even publicly claim a specific area of practice. Unsurprisingly, these limitations on attorney advertising were observed substantially in the breach. State bar associations were hard-pressed to enforce them, and enterprising attorneys were eager to avoid them. Pressure for relaxation of the norms gradually mounted, but did not come to a head until 1977, when the Supreme Court finally weighed in. 
Model Rule 7.1, Communications Concerning a Lawyer's Services, notes, A lawyer shall not make a false or misleading communication about the lawyer or the lawyer's services. A communication is false or misleading if it contains a material misrepresentation of fact or law, or omits a fact necessary to make the statement considered as a whole not materially misleading. Solicitation. In addition to prohibiting advertising, bar associations historically also prohibited attorneys from soliciting clients or approaching potential clients directly, rather than as members of the general public. For example, Canon 28 of the 1908 ABA Canons of Professional Ethics specifically prescribed attorneys from volunteering legal advice to a stranger or seeking out injured parties in the hope of providing legal advice. Indeed, bar associations typically monitored and punished solicitation considerably more aggressively than advertising. The stated objection to solicitation was the concern that unscrupulous attorneys might take advantage of unsophisticated members of the public who lacked the capacity to evaluate the quality of their legal services or the fairness of their fees. The bar associations were also dominated by successful attorneys at large firms who tended to represent corporate defendants rather than injured plaintiffs. Prosecutorial Misconduct Prosecutors are responsible for enforcing criminal law. Indeed, for better or worse, prosecutors probably have the most important role in our modern criminal justice system. Among many other things, prosecutors decide who to charge with crimes, which crimes to charge, and whether to offer a plea bargain and they exercise immense discretion in all of those areas. In practice, prosecutors play a much more important role in the administration of criminal justice than judges, because only about 3% of criminal prosecutions go to trial. The overwhelming majority of criminal defendants plead guilty, and the prosecutors determine what sentence the defendant will receive, with limited oversight from the judge. And prosecutors strongly encourage defendants to plead guilty, rather than go to trial. If a defendant refuses to plead guilty, the prosecutors typically charge aggressively and request the longest possible sentence. At least in theory, The paramount duty of the prosecutor is to seek justice, not a conviction. As Justice Sutherland observed in Berger v. United States, a prosecutor is the representative not of an ordinary party to a controversy, but of a sovereignty whose obligation to govern impartiality is as compelling as its obligation to govern at all and whose interest, therefore, in a criminal prosecution is not that it shall win a case, 
but that justice shall be done. As such, he is in a particular and very definite sense the servant of the law, the twofold aim of which is that guilt shall not escape or innocence suffer. He may prosecute with earnestness and vigor. Indeed, he should do so. But while he may strike hard blows, he is not at liberty to strike foul ones. It is much his duty to refrain from improper methods calculated to produce a wrongful conviction as it is to use every legitimate means to bring about a just one. Accordingly, prosecutors should never employ improper means, even to achieve results they believe to be just. They should always be candid with the court and the defense and should never suppress exculpatory evidence or make improper statements. As Justice Jackson observed, the qualities of a good prosecutor are as elusive and as impossible to define as those which make a gentleman, and those who need to be told would not understand it anyway. A sensitiveness to fair play in sportsmanship is perhaps the best protection against the abuse of power. And the citizen's safety lies in the prosecutor, who tempers zeal with human kindness, who seeks truth and not victims, who serves the law and not factional purposes, who approaches his task with humility. The American Bar Association has described the duties of a prosecutor in the Model Rules of Professional Responsibility, Rule 3.8, and in a separate set of model rules governing the prosecution function. Most jurisdictions have adopted some version of these rules, but their effectiveness is limited by the discretion and immunity of prosecutors. For one thing, it is often difficult or impossible to know when prosecutors have violated their professional duties. Even if they have, they are usually protected by absolute immunity. And historically, courts have been reluctant to impose meaningful sanctions on prosecutors, even for egregious misconduct. Finally, judicial recusal and misconduct. Judges must be neutral and impartial at all times, or at least they must appear to be neutral and impartial. Accordingly, judicial conduct is regulated by a combination of constitutional, statutory, and administrative rules intended to ensure neutrality and impartiality. Among other things, due process requires judges to recuse themselves to avoid conflicts of interest and may require disqualification if a judge fails to recuse. Federal law prohibits judges from accepting or soliciting bribes, but it also requires judges to recuse themselves whenever their impartiality could reasonably be questioned. The Judicial Conduct and Disability Act of 1980 authorizes complaints alleging that a federal judge has engaged in conduct prejudicial to the effective and expeditious administration 
of the business of the courts or is enabled to discharge all of the duties of office by reason of mental or physical disability. And the rules for judicial conduct and judicial disability proceedings govern misconduct and disability proceedings against federal judges under the Act. States may have similar statutory and administrative provisions. Finally, federal and state judicial codes of conduct comprehensively regulate judges. In 1924, the ABA first created and approved its Canons of Judicial Conduct, which were revised in 1972, 1990, and 2007. The ABA Canons are currently titled the Model Code of Judicial Conduct and consist of both aspirational principles and specific rules intended to realize those principles. The federal judiciary has adopted the Code of Conduct for United States Judges, which includes the ethical canons that apply to federal judges and provides guidance on their performance of official duties and engagement in a variety of outside activities. Most states also have judicial commissions, which are empowered to investigate violations of judicial ethics. The Model Code of Judicial Conduct, Canon 1, notes, A judge shall uphold and promote the independence, integrity, and impartiality of the judiciary, and shall avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety. Model Rule 1.2, Promoting Confidence in the Judiciary, notes, A judge shall act at all times in a manner that promotes public confidence in the independence, integrity, and impartiality of the judiciary, and shall avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this section. Take care.